Let's turn again in our Bibles to Paul's letter to the Philippians as we continue our series in this important book. This morning we'll be looking at verses 9 through 18. And so if you weren't here last week or just by way of review about what's going on in this letter. We talked last week about how really beginning in chapter 1, in verse 27, all the way to the end of our section today, that's one long focused sustained um, discussion in which Paul calls us, God's people, as he says in verse 27, to live a manner of life worthy of the gospel. We saw last week that he's commending them. They believe the gospel. They believe in Jesus Christ. And he mentioned last week that in the midst of opposition, They are contending together. They're defending it. So they're believing it, and they're defending it. And we saw last week, his focus is, now let's live this out. What does a life that reflects the gospel look like? And we saw last week, he summons us to think through together this mindset that we all are called to. Each Christian is called to have the mindset of humility as we interact with one another as the body of Christ. So we were called to think through that together, that mindset. And then we closed by thinking about the model. Let's think through the model of what humility looks like in action. Humility, as Paul defined it, is putting the interests of others above our own interests. To die to self, to sacrifice. And the greatest model of that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who we saw last week is God, eternal God, who humbled himself in obedience to the Father to take on human form and to die on the cross. That's that's the model. So we we thought about those things. Today, we're called now to work through this together. We thought about it. Now let's work through it. And And so our focus in thinking through this is that God is working in us to work together to glorify his Son. And so I want to begin with verse 9, and I'll read through verse 11. That's the goal here. That's why God is working in us. We're going to come back to these verses at the very end. We've already sung about these verses. Uh, Travis led us in reading through them. It's based on Isaiah. But this is what God's working toward. This is in verse 9. Jesus has died, and now in verse 9, he says this. Therefore... God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There we see that that God the Father is at work. To glorify his son. That's what he's working all history towards. And now we're going to see that he's working in us toward that end. So let's let's pause again and ask for God's uh, blessing in our word. Father, we thank you that you have called us through your son, through your spirit, to be the people of God. We are formed, Lord, as we've sung, in great weakness. We are weak. But Lord, Jesus is strong. Jesus loves us, and that's our great hope. Lord, we fall short 
of glorifying Him. But Lord, we're grateful to see in this passage, as, as we'll look in a moment, that You're at work in us to overcome our weaknesses. And so Lord, we come this morning grateful that we have not only Your Word, but Your Spirit. We need Him, Lord. I need Him to be able to explain Your Word and my weakness. And we all need Your Spirit to help us to understand it, to listen well. Lord, to believe this and to be moved to live it out. But Lord, you know that this morning there are a lot of things on our mind. Good things, encouraging things. And Lord, there are also also things that are deeply distressing to us. That we are worried and concerned about. So Lord, we confess that to you. We ask you, Lord, by your Spirit, help us to not think on those things. But Lord, to think of you. And seek you and and working through those areas. Lord, sanctify us, we pray, by your truth, as Jesus prayed. And Lord, we pray if there's anyone here that has yet to to bow the knee to Christ, that yet to confess him as Lord now, on this side of eternity, we pray, Lord, you'll draw them today. And Lord, we commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're here last Sunday night, uh, you heard one of our other pastors, Pastor D, remind us that even though we're believers, many of us for a long period of time, we still, we fail to apply the basics of the faith. Things that we've heard many, many times. Things that we just take for granted. We know them here. We've thought through them. But as D reminds us, we fail often to apply them to live that out, to, to work through these things together. We struggle from just simply thinking about it and believing it to actually working through it and applying it, particularly in this case in our passage before us as God's people together. And as, as Dee was saying that last Sunday night, I was thinking in my mind, yes and amen, that's so true. And just a general affirmation in my mind. But then I was acutely reminded of this last week, about midweek, that I, I often fail to apply the very basic things, even things that I've reflected on. Last week, I was helping one of my kids with their homework. It was not algebra, I can assure you that. But I, as we were working on that together, and the hour was getting late, I began to, I found my mind wandering and thinking, there's a couple of other things that I would rather be doing right now. They weren't inherently sinful things, but that's what I, I would prefer to pursue in those moments. And as I thought about that, I was immediately convicted of, what did we just talk about on Sunday? I, I told you last week about how my dad would sacrifice his time and sit down with me, and he called me to think through algebra together. These complex ideas and the implications that would have in going forward for me. And as my dad would talk to me and I thought about my situation last week with my child, he would say, okay, now we're going to work through these problems, which I absolutely dreaded. As I told you last week, no shortcuts. We had to work through what we learned and apply them to these problems. And I was reminded last week in helping or trying to, sitting there trying to help my child, at least appearing like it, I was not doing what I'd actually said to y'all last week. I, I, I was reminded of my father's example, reminded of, of Jesus' example, and I was at that moment failing to put my child's interest above my own. Now, 
you've had moments like that, I'll imagine. And those moments, we could um, reflect on that to the point of just walking around and feeling guilty. That's not what God wants us to, to do. As I thought about that, I'm thankful that God brought that to my mind. He's not content to let me be selfish. He's continually working in our minds and our hearts to bring those truths that Dee mentioned to our minds to remind us this is the way. This is the way to walk in. And so that's what we have before us. Paul realizes that, yes, he can explain these things and call us to think through them together, wrestle with these amazing truths of the incarnation of Jesus and his humiliation on the cross and point us to the great day of his ultimate exaltation. Those are wonderful truths. We confess them. But Paul knows it's a process in living it out. And so he now returns to the subject of putting others' interests above our own. But as we'll see, as he calls us to work through this together, the great news is that God himself is in that equation. He's working through us as we work through this together. So as we come now to this next section in uh, Philippians 2, he says in verse 12, Therefore, so he's just drawing on everything he's just said from uh, chapter 127 all the way up to 11. In light of all that he said about who Jesus is, in light of uh, the call to live this out, he wants to, to continue to press this home because he knows that when we face difficulties, whether it's persecution, as it was with the Philippians, or just hardships in our lives, he knows the tendency, we see this all throughout the Bible, is to pursue self-preservation. And so he says, what I've just told you has consequences, has implications. He says in verse 12, therefore, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So he's, he's now calling us, let's work through this together as God's people. Not just as individual Christians, but as the body of Christ. Let's work through this. He's given us the mindset and the model of humility to think through. Now let's work through what humility looks like in action. This, he says, is the life that reflects the gospel. He, we saw last week in verse 8, Christ obeyed to the point of death for our interests. He obeyed, and now he says in verse 12, we're called to obey. And he says in verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, what does this mean? Think about the comments of a uh, theologian from the 16th century who had served many years in a monastery. And as he thought about his own standing before God, despite the rigors of the monastic life he was involved in, he said this. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I had an extremely disturbed conscience. Why is that? He explains, 
because I felt that I was a sinner before God and I could not believe that God was satisfied by my efforts. Now we'll talk about that man, we'll celebrate that man as God worked through him later this month. Talking about Martin Luther. And Luther would remind us that passages like this, he's not saying work for your salvation. That's, that's important. Luther and the other reformers, as God worked through them, they recovered the gospel. They would point us to what Paul says in chapter 3, that we put no confidence in ourselves before God. But as Paul says there, rather we put our faith in Jesus and we get the very righteousness of God. That's our standing before God. He's saying here, okay, you are those that are being saved by God. Then here's what it looks like in practice. You're being saved. You're not earning it. You're working it out in community and living life together. This is our calling. For the past 20 years, the University of Colorado football team has struggled mightily. They've been one of the worst football programs in the nation for some time now. And many of you know that in uh, recent months, Deion Sanders, a man who spent many years in Atlanta for the Braves and Falcons, is now their head coach, having come from Jackson State prior to that. And he will tell you, I want our players to enjoy life together. I want them to have fun together. At the same time, when he first took his position and he first met with the players in Colorado, he says, you have become complacent. He says, you don't respect the situation you're in. And going forward, it's going to be a different attitude, a different worth ethic. We want kids that are disciplined and act with character. Is that you? Are you serious about this great opportunity that you've been given? This is who you are. Are you living it out? And so as, as you listen to that speech and you hear just how serious he is, I remember when I watched it on YouTube, one of the viewers said, I'm not even there and I'm afraid. <laughs> He's all business. And more than 50 players actually transferred out of that program. But those that got the message stayed. Those that transferred out were afraid. What's this going to mean for me? Is this going to change my comfort zone? I don't want this. I don't like this message. And they, they left. They had reason to fear. They saw the inevitable outcome of their current situation. If they continue with that apathy, they will be gone. They were afraid. But those that got the message knew that he's their authority and they responded with respect. That's what Paul's calling for here. Not to live in paranoia, but when we realize our calling, our identity, not just as an individual Christian, but as the people of God, this is our calling, not by ourselves, but together, to work through this together. As Deion Sanders talks about coming to Colorado, he says this, God chose me for this time. And he said, for that I praise him. Each day I'm trying to please him. That's what's undergirding his calling to those young men. He, he will tell you, I don't want just to win games. I want to build young men. And he has told the press, they're going to be on campus sitting in the front row, not in the back row with their head down, 
asleep, but on the front row. They're going to be the ones opening the door for women. They're the ones saying, yes, ma'am, and, and no, sir, and yes, ma'am. He says, we're raising men. And, and you see, his presupposition here is he wants godly men to praise God with him ultimately. And that's what Paul's calling for us here. This is our calling. God calls us not to live in paranoia, but to work through this in respect and reverence in light of this call. We saw a few weeks ago, Dr. Coyce to remind us in chapter 1 that God began the good work. And now we're reminded here in verse 13, he's continuing. Why are we called to fear and doing this? Notice what he says in verse 13. For or because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We are called to work. We're called to follow the Lord Jesus. We're called to put others above ourselves as part of this calling. And the amazing news that we're told here is not only did God begin the good work, but he's actively working in us. Notice that he says in verse 13, it's God who worked. That's the present tense. He's currently working in us. So as we will or we desire to put the interests of others above ourselves, that's God doing that. That's not our own goodness. That's God at work transforming us. That's his commitment to that good work. He gives us the very desire and the ability to carry this out. That's the life that is worthy of the gospel. God is at work in us as we work together to glorify his son. He's changing our desires. He's changing our will. He's changing our desires to not want to just pursue our own interests, but to sit down and do the homework with our children. To sit alongside a brother or sister and grieve with them. To listen to them, to, to get involved in their lives. And, and Paul's assuming that we are engaged in each other's lives, that we know the interests of those around us so that we can engage them. And the good news is that God is at work in us to do this very thing. And so this is wonderful news. But again, Paul recognizes it's a process. He recognizes this is not our natural inclination. As God changes our inclination, notice what he says in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, without blemish, um, excuse me, among whom you shine as lights in the world, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So Paul has shown us last week that God himself took on flesh and he, he died the humiliating death on the cross for our interests. He, then he follows that up with telling us about this, this great day that one day God will reveal his son in his full glory. And he'll be exalted as Lord. And until that great day, God's at work in us to think like he does, to act like he does. And even though God is at work in us, and that's a wonderful, glorious truth, that's our great hope, he immediately follows it up with the summons, don't argue, don't grumble. Paul says in Galatians 5 that 
Although we have the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God, he says, it pushes back against our remaining old man, our, our remaining sin nature, because he says, they're at odds. Our remaining flesh, it, it doesn't want to do what the Spirit of God does. And that's what's going on here. We know intellectually, yes, this is our calling. I'm thankful that Jesus did it for me as an individual. But in context, there's a strong indication that the grumbling and disputing is about this very calling to put others above ourselves. He's not talking about you know, waking up um, you know, with illness or you know, something that belongs to us, breaking. It's, those things are, are tests uh, for our patients as well. Those are important things, but he's not concerned about the individual dilemma. He's concerned about going through those dilemmas together and the strong tendency to pursue self and not get into the, the difficult messiness of living in a fallen world together. And so while God is at work in us, there's a tendency for us to push back, to grumble and dispute. Why will we grumble? Why will we dispute with other Christians? Because this calling is a call to live, as Deion Sanders might say, a disciplined life with character. He told those players, he said, you've got to realize where you're at. He, he chastised uh, some players for being on a phone right before a big game. He says, what are you thinking? What is so important in your life and your own world that you can't see the bigger picture? Don't you realize what you're involved in has implications for your family and for generations. It's not about you. It's about people. And that's what the calling is here is, well, yes, individual concerns are important. They can't be pursued apart from this calling. We don't have time to get into all the details, but there are a number of things here that indicate Paul is thinking about Israel in the Old Testament as they were delivered from slavery in Egypt and they were in the wilderness on the way to the promised land. We sang about that this morning, about our desire, our need for, for our great God to guide us. That word grumbling here, Paul uses it elsewhere, describing that very generation and how they, they grumbled and they provoked the Lord. They were uh, called the crooked and perverse generation. In the Old Testament. You think about those occasions when Israel grumbled in the desert. They were about just basic provisions, food and water and safety on the way to the land that God had promised them. They weren't evil things they were concerned about. They had taken those good things and elevated them above the giver. The culmination of their grumbling comes in Numbers 14. You remember that's when the 12 spies come back from scouting land of Canaan. And the majority report was the people there are too numerous, they're too big. There's no way we can do this. And Joshua and Caleb were the minority report and said, no, no, don't listen to this. But we, we reminded this is the, the natural inclination of the human heart to grumble. Uh, Numbers 14 says, all the people, all the people grumbled against Moses and Aaron. When they heard this news, they grumbled. And of course, in that passage, God goes on to say, they're grumbling against me. When we grumble about our circumstances, 
as it relates to coming alongside our brothers and sisters, when we grumble about that calling, we may not say it so brazenly, but we're implicitly grumbling against God that he's put this in our path. The Israelites didn't like their situation. And so as they continue to grumble, the specificity of it is, they said, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? God had made these promises. He swore on oath to do this. And they said, we're going to die. Joshua, in response, says, the Lord is with them. I mean, excuse me, with us. Do not fear them. That's, a, that's an age-old problem. It's not limited to this group. The fear of man. Pastor D um, has used the phrase called fear-based decisions. Now, I know in my life I have operated out of that many times, and that's exactly what's going on with the Israelites here. But Paul has acknowledged that this is a reality even for this audience here. He talked about uh, not being frightened against their opponents. He talked about the miraculous response by some preachers in, in the area when they saw that Paul was imprisoned. Nevertheless, they were emboldened without fear to keep going. Our natural bent is to fear others, whether that's physical harm, um, not being accepted, whatever. We fear what others might do to us. Paul says the life worthy of the gospel is not one of grumbling about the circumstances that come our way when we're called to come alongside others. He'll go on to say at the end of this letter, don't be anxious about anything, but in all things, pray about that. Now, in context, he's commending them for having sacrificially given to his ministry needs. Perhaps in that context, they themselves are worried about, well, what about us? What's going to happen to us now that we've, we've uh, helped out? What about us? And that's exactly what the Israelites are thinking here in Numbers 14. They say to, to uh, Moses, wouldn't it be better if we just go back to Egypt? And God later responds, they don't believe in me despite what I did for them in Egypt. Despite all the things they had seen and experienced, the promises they heard, they didn't believe that. They felt it was back, better to go back to the old way. And so when we wrestle with this calling, that's our temptation. Whether it's sacrificially giving of our resources or facing a situation that would frighten us with people. And Paul says, no, the life that's worthy of the gospel, trust God that he's with us, that he's going to bring that good work to completion. Just as he promised to bring Israel to the land, he's going to bring us to that ultimate Canaan. In Deuteronomy 8, Moses tells Israelites at the end of that 40 years of wandering that resulted from that unbelief of Joshua and Caleb. He says... Remember how the, the, all the way the Lord led you to this place. He humbled you. And he let you hunger so that he would feed you by manna, which you didn't know, and that you would recognize that you don't just live by bread alone, but by God's word. He was humbling Israel to let them see it's not about your own ability. It's not about you as an individual, but you're ultimately relying on God to get you through these circumstances. And God is at work in us to help us as we persevere. 
Paul says in verse 15, when we live this way, it's counterintuitive. He says it will shine as lights in the world. This reminds us of what Jesus says, and it reminds us about what Daniel said, that when we live like this, we reflect God, reflect his glory. And and both Daniel and Jesus, it's for the goal of others seeing the one true God and coming to know him. It's a supernatural response to not grumble and dispute. How otherwise can Paul write from prison about his joy? How can he do that? That's counterintuitive. That's not our inclination. It's a supernatural response. But it's a supernatural process. It's not a one and done that, okay, now I'm not going to grumble any longer. I'm not going to dispute any longer. Towards the end of the letter, he says, I have learned in whatever situation to be content. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And as you read the broader context there, he's talking about a lot of encouraging contexts, a lot of discouraging contexts. And God's at work in him, but he also says in that context that God's at work in the Philippians to provide for him in those times of want. He's learning and he wants us to learn. So how do we live like this? How do we live in a way that doesn't grumble and and dispute with people around us? Well, certainly we've seen that God's working in us to work this out together to glorify His Son. But also, He says, we do this in verse 16 by holding fast to the word of life, so that the day of Christ may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. We hold fast to the gospel. He's committed them. We've seen it in chapter 1. They believe it. And they're intent on defending it to those around them. But it's seeing that this, this message is our life. Right now, it's not just eternal life, but it's life in the present. This is the life that when we are God's people, we can be encouraged that He's at work in us to overcome our, our will to just pursue self, but to change our will that we're glad to come alongside each other. And no longer complain and grumble and arguing. And this, as we think about the, what we saw earlier in chapter, excuse me, chapter 2, um, verses 9 through 11, how God is going to glorify His Son one day. I want us to see now how, that He is working in us toward that end. Uh, we think about our call, excuse me, our, our responsive reading. And you look at what Paul says in Philippians 2. Everyone agrees that Paul has been reflecting on Isaiah 45. We, we said that earlier, that one day every knee will bow, every tongue confess, almost verbatim there. And in Isaiah, the result of that bowing of the knee and the confessing the tongue, it's going to result in glory coming to God. And the speaker here is, of course, the Lord. We also saw in our responsive ring the good news, this isn't just for Israel, But we're going to see that this is for the whole world. Now, as Paul reflects on that passage, notice how he sees this being carried out. Yes, he believes what Isaiah has written, that that glory is going to come to God as people confess Jesus as Lord. Now, he's already told us in chapter 1, some people will not be saved. Some people will be destroyed. 
Some people will bow the knee and make that confession on the other side of eternity. They have no choice but to recognize this is the Lord of all. So as we think about all of human history moving towards glorifying God, we see it's, it's going to be bound up in recognizing that Jesus Christ is that Lord. Now, in Isaiah, this is the good news for us. That God calls the world, turn to me and be saved. From the ends of the earth, people will come to know Israel's God. Notice what Paul has told us here. We're being saved, that salvation that's held out in Isaiah. We're working that out. And as we're doing that, that's going to result in us being light to the world. Isaiah talks about the world coming to know God and glorifying Him and receiving that salvation. And now notice in Paul, people are being saved. Gentiles are being saved now. And as they live in this supernatural way and people see, why are they not complaining? Why are they not disputing with each other in the midst of all this this crisis and turmoil. The heavens declare the glory of God. As we live like lights, like the firmament, we stress God's glory. People see this is supernatural. So the great goal in Isaiah, we get to be a part of. God is at work in us to will and to do. Why? So that others can see that process so that they join us on this side of eternity and confessing Christ as Lord. And that is good news that God is at work, not just as individuals, but collectively, not just one light, but as lights. Again, we saw a few weeks ago, Dr. Koyster remind us that great promise in chapter 1 that God began the work, he's going to complete it. Now notice, we have a role in this. We've seen today, do all things without disputing. Care about each other. Put others' needs above your own. Why? So that you may be blameless on the day of Christ, that last day, judgment day, resurrection day, when people will see He is the Lord. In the meantime, He says, care about each other. And that way, on the day of the Lord. You'll be seen for what you are. Now, he's also not just exhorting them, he's praying for them. Notice he said in chapter 1, It's my prayer that your love may abound. Not just for him, but for each other. Why? So that you may be blameless for the day of Christ. So he's exhorting them and he's praying for them for the same goal. Paul recognizes, I have a role to play in this. I'm concerned about others. Even though I'm in prison, I want to write and exhort. In the meantime, I want to also pray for them as I anticipate that great day when God's Son will be glorified. And so, to bring it to a close there, again, that promise is that Paul is confident that if God began the work in us, he will complete it for that day. God ultimately is going to do it. He's going to do it. He's working us toward that end. But notice, he uses us to be part of that process. That's encouraging weak, failing parents like me. Think about all the issues that you struggle with in your life. Despite those things, God is changing us to think of others, to put others above ourselves. And so Paul closes out by saying that in um, verse 17, 
even if I would be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. In the Old Testament, before the coming of Christ, God prepared the people to recognize, I need a perfect substitute, an unblemished animal to, animal to be sacrificed for my sins before a holy God. And many times that was capped off with a drink offering offered to God. Paul knows ultimately they're saved by Christ. That, that faith he refers to is in Jesus. And Paul realizes that if I'm martyred, it's ultimately for your benefit. And he says, I'm glad to do that because this is our calling. This is what it looks like. This calling to live out the model that Jesus gives us. He died for us and he uses us. He, God works in us to work together to glorify his son. And yes, we may fear death. We may fear opposition. We may worry about God's provision, but ultimately realize God's at work. He's moving everything toward that day. In the most difficult of circumstances, we can rejoice to know it's not in isolation. Our struggles are for each other's struggles and for the good of God's people. And ultimately, to reflect that to a dark world. Let's continue to work through this together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus, who is our ultimate model for this. Lord, you know that we can't live this out in our own strength. Lord, we need your help. We confess, Lord, we are still struggling with selfishness and fear of others. We struggle sometimes to believe your promises. How can you bring good out of these sufferings that we go through? Help us, Lord. Renew us. Lord, use us as individuals that make up your church. Use us. Help us to recognize when others around us are struggling. Help us to put their interests above ours. Not for our glory, but Lord, for your glory. And use us as your people that we would shine. That we would be a light. That others would come to the light. And confess with us on this side of eternity that Jesus, in fact, is Lord. To your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.